because of all the wicked things that I've done before I got saved, I've oftentimes said to people, I mean, not to everybody I talk to, but in specific circumstances where it seems helpful or, you know, whatever, maybe it's to open an opportunity to share the gospel or whatever, I'll share with people, I don't need an internet connection. I've got too much stuff, you know, stored in my brain. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 25 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And this is the fourth in the series of How Were Your Barriers Removed? In this episode, we will find out how DW barriers were removed when he came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes, no matter how great the selection, you just can't find exactly what you want. Design It Yourself custom gift baskets solve that problem by allowing you to choose the specific products you want to include with your unique gift basket. And in addition to hand selecting the products, you can further personalize your custom basket by adding coffee mugs, stuffed animals, mylar balloons, or even an imprinted ribbon. When you're done, We'll put it all together in a one-of-a-kind, perfect basket and ship or hand-deliver it directly to your lucky recipient. Click in the description section to design your basket today. DW, welcome back to the Removing Barriers podcast. It's good to be back. I wasn't sure you'd have me back after the last time. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) No, we're glad to have you. All right, we'll get right into it and we'll get to the very first question. DW. What state or country were you born in? I was born in Asheville, North Carolina, in the United States. Tell me more about Asheville. It's a beautiful area. Got the the largest mansion in North America. It's over 300, I think, 17 rooms or something in that mansion. Kind of an artsy town. There's uh, colleges, the universities of North Carolina is in that town or in that city. I don't know what the population is. Good question, but pretty busy, pretty big area. Bible Belt? Bible Belt, yeah. There was a fella... In the late 17, early 1800s, that he was around during the time of the Great Awakening, but ended up going down into the North Carolina area. I'm trying to remember his name, but anyway, he, um, unlike Jonathan Edwards and Charles Finney, who were focused primarily just on evangelism, this fella, whose name I can't remember at the moment, he felt that along with evangelism, church planning was also important. And so in his lifetime, he planted a hundred or so Baptist churches and then people that came, you know, after him that he led to the Lord and planted churches in their area and stuff. They basically repeated that same model. And to this day, that area is the most densely populated Baptist area in the world. Oh, wow. Interesting facts. Tell me about your family. What type of family were you born in? Was it a Christian family, two-parent family, single-parent family, siblings? Both my parents were married until my father died a month and a half ago, and they were married for 54 years, and they had four children, well, I guess five. My oldest brother, or my only brother, he died a few weeks before he was born, and they had a lot of trouble having children. They adopted a girl, her name was Cammie, and then... Shortly thereafter, my mom got pregnant. That was my brother. He died in the womb, like I said. And then about a year after that, my sister Amanda was born, and then me, and then my younger sister Charlotte. Thinking about this question, 
what came to mind is that I was raised in a secular Christian family. How would you define a secular Christian family? So my parents are saved. I think my older sister is saved. My younger sister claims to be saved. So, And we went to church every Sunday, every Wednesday. We were there for special services, etc. But we didn't have a lot of rules, or that at least were like strongly enforced. And so things were a little loose from that perspective. So I say secular Christian family because we went to church, we espoused Christian values and so forth, but yet we watched all the same movies that everyone else was watching. We listened to the same music everyone else was listening to, etc. So having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Sure. Yeah. You describe DW being raised in a secular Christian household and what that was like. Would you describe for us the first time you actually heard the gospel? The first time I heard the gospel, honestly, I don't remember. I'm sure growing up in church, I heard it, and probably lots. I don't remember it. And by saying a secular Christian family, I don't want to make it sound like my parents didn't care or they didn't want to do what was best or whatever. But both of my parents went to Bob Jones University, and my dad actually went there from grade three all the way through college. I remember them saying several times when I was growing up that they felt like they had things too strict when they were growing up, so they wanted to not have such a strict, you know, set of rules for their children. And so, like I said, they would let us go to school dances, I mean, all kinds of stuff like that, but they would still take us to church. And I remember even though we were in church two times every Sunday, every Wednesday, went to special meetings, we were in church a lot, actually. I never really wanted to be there. I had no interest in spiritual things. and. You know, so I'm sure I heard the gospel. My parents would read the Bible with us. They didn't really explain it, but the Bible is packed full of the gospel. So I'm sure I heard the gospel lots. As a nine-year-old boy, my parents told me that I prayed a prayer at a church called Piney Mountain Baptist Church. I even remember the color of the carpet, but I don't really remember the event of praying. And shortly thereafter, I got baptized. But what my parents didn't know at the time, at least, though, was that in third grade I was introduced to three guys, Greg Thomas, Jonathan Young, and Jonathan Pruitt. And so I was about eight years old, and these guys were doing drugs and all kinds of stuff, even at a very early age. Oh, wow. And, you know, when I was 10 years old, I'm not trying to be overly graphic or anything like that, but when I was 10 years old, a girl who was a bit older than me, she was a few years older than me, exposed herself to me. And through these three guys, I got exposed to pornography and so forth. And when I was around the age of 11, my dad, who was doing sound work and stuff at the time, got involved with the county fair and working there. And he let me work in one of the booths there. So for about four years, I worked at the county fair with the carnies that come in with all the rides and everything. I worked in the carnival booths and those people were vulgar and, you know, and so forth. So I got exposed to a lot of things there. I remember my parents letting me go to the skating rink as a child without much supervision. There were lots of girls that would come there and stuff. And uh, at that county fair, I lost my virginity when I was 13. And But I was still going to church. I was still in youth group. And so I guess what I'm trying to say by all that is my focus was on those things, not on the gospel. So I don't really remember what would be going on in church. I wanted to get out of there as soon as possible. My mind was filled with other things during the church service. So I don't really remember the first time I heard the gospel. 
it wasn't until I was 30 years old that I remember the gospel. Did your upbringing create any root of bitterness within you? Looking at your parents saying, okay, they're going to church, they claim to be Christians or they're Christians, but they weren't protective of you enough. Did that foster any bitterness within you, even as a youngster or a teenager coming up? I don't think so. I mean, I would call my parents and talk to them. I left home when I was 17. You know, I sort of jokingly say that I didn't want to be under the tyrannical thumb of my parents anymore, but my parents weren't really that bad because, like I said, they didn't have a lot of, you know, strict rules that they enforced or anything. When I was 17, shortly after my 17th birthday, I convinced my parents to sign a waiver so I could join the Marine Corps delayed entry program. And within weeks of graduation, I was off in boot camp. I turned 18 in boot camp. And so the Marine Corps closed a lot of doors for me. I opened some other doors, took me to Washington, D.C. And I didn't see my parents very often, but I would talk to them on the phone. And we had a fairly good relationship. As soon as they would bring up church or anything like that, I would, as quickly as possible, end the conversation, get off the phone. But I remember having a car accident one time where a taxi cab hit me head on at almost 60 miles an hour and spun me around three times. I hit a light pole. I wasn't wearing my seatbelt. My airbag didn't deploy. And I remember the first person I called after that was my mom. And she said, I think the Lord's trying to get your attention. It was another seven years, though, before I actually got saved. Oh, interesting. So bitterness, I don't think so. Yeah, it just seems to me that, you know, there were a lot of leeway or a lot of liberty in your upbringing that I don't know what that would foster in the heart and mind of a youth. So that's why I was asking that question. What was your frame of mind then? The reason I wanted to get out of my parents' home wasn't because they were really constricting me all that much as such, but I just wanted whatever, you know, little control that they were exhorting over me. You know, they did have some rules. I couldn't be out all night till the wee hours of the night that a curfew and that kind of thing. And so I just wanted that, you know, alleviated. I just wanted to be able to go headlong into what I was into, so... And when I would visit home, sometimes I would bring a girlfriend with me or whatever. And my parents never stopped me. So, like I said, there was not really a bitterness there because there was no constraints. Describe the time when you actually come to full realization of your sin and what the gospel presented to you then or what? When did you actually come face to face with your sin? I have to start a little bit before that just to sort of make, at least in my own head, make the story make sense. But So, I got out of the Marine Corps when I was almost 20. I'm sorry, when I was almost 21. And I got out in July and then August, I turned 21. So shortly after I got out of the Marine Corps, I met my son's biological mom and she got pregnant outside of wedlock. My parents didn't want me to marry her, but I, I did. And shortly after he was born, there was some neglect on her part of him. And there was a lot of fighting between she and I. And I knew the solution was... Even though I couldn't really explain why I thought this, I knew the solution was Jesus Christ. Because I guess I'd grown up in church, and so I was thinking back to maybe some of those things sort of remembered. And so I tried to share that with her, even though I didn't know the truth myself at the time. And that was like putting gasoline on fire. She doesn't want anything to do with Christianity even to this day. He was about six months old. He abandoned us, and I was a single parent for about eight and a half years. And toward the end of that eight and a half years, I remember when my son was about six, I had gotten three invites to a church. And the first two, I just sort of discarded. One of them came because that church had put a door hanger on 
the door of the woman that I was involved with. And she gave it to me. She didn't want anything to do with it, but she gave it to me thinking I would want something to do with it because the time I claimed to be a Christian. And I just sort of tossed it to the side, didn't really pay much attention to it. And then she and I went on a trip over to Europe. And while I was gone, my mom came up and was watching my son for a couple of weeks. And during that time, one of the ladies at his daycare invited her to the same church. And so she passed along the invitation to me. And again, I just sort of brushed it aside. And then I bought a house in the Northern Virginia area. And I got a door hanger on my door. And it was late October 2008. And I had remembered getting up and walking into my son's room and listening to him breathe for a little while. And I just thought, you know, if we die in a car accident, what happens to him? Because I remembered what, you know, my parents telling me when I was nine years old, I prayed a prayer and I got baptized. And I would remind myself of that whenever I'd be worried about dying or eternity. And, but I was really bothered that night. And I remember going and looking at that invitation that I'd gotten on my door and I decided, okay, that Sunday I was going to go to church. So I went and visited. And a few days later, a fellow from that church followed up on my visit, asked me if I'd come meet with him. I did. He asked me what would happen if I died. I told him when I was nine years old, I prayed a prayer and I got baptized. He said, well, that's great that you're a Christian. He reached into his pocket, pulled out a tract, handed me the tract. And he said, well, if you're a Christian, you'll memorize these verses. And I thought he was crazy, to be honest with you. But I went home that night and started thinking, well, maybe the reason I don't feel like a Christian is because I never tell anyone. So I started doing what he said. I started memorizing those verses. It was just the Romans road. So Romans 10 or Romans uh, 3.23, Romans 6.23 and Romans 10.9 and started memorizing those verses. Even though I was convicted of my sin when I was reading Romans 3.23, which says for all of sin and come short of the glory of God, I didn't really think about specific sin, if you will. I, I just sort of thinking to myself, yeah, I'm, I know I'm, everyone's a sinner. And then I went on to, you know, 623A, uh, the wages of sin is death. And I knew there was hell, but I didn't really spend a whole lot of time thinking about that. I just sort of moved on. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord is the second half of that verse. And But it was when I got to Romans 10.9 where it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, that's when I was confronted with my sin. And it was November 9th, 2008. I was by myself in my bedroom. When I read that verse, the first part of that verse where it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus. And I just remember sort of out loud saying to myself, why did the writer call Jesus the Lord? And I was confronted with the holiness of God wrapped up in the deity of Christ. And at that moment, that sin that I'd just been sort of going through with Romans 3.23, I just suddenly came up to the forefront. I don't really know how to explain it, but I just suddenly became acutely aware of the fact that Jesus is holy, and I felt like I was flushed out into the light of his holiness, and I saw myself separated from him because of my sin. I know that was a long answer, but... I think that was exactly the answer we were trying to flush out. I think many people profess to be saved or profess to have a knowledge of Christ, but never came to a full realization of their sin. And I think that's important to flush out. So you've just described the time when you came to a full realization of your sin. What barriers do you think were preventing you from being saved? Was not realizing your sin to the full extent one of them? Were there others? He's dead now, but there's a preacher by the name of Paris Reedhead that said in a sermon that he preached that the reason that people don't get saved is because they love their sin and they want to continue in it. And that was certainly a description of me. 
John chapter 3, it says that men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. And every time I would commit wickedness, I mean, oftentimes I would think to myself, I know this is wrong, but I wanted it so much. I loved it so much that I just would continue and, you know, head on into it anyway. And so what kept me, I think, from getting saved was just a love of my sin. Probably prayed the sinner's prayer a thousand times. I would oftentimes remind myself that I prayed a prayer when I was nine years old and, and I got baptized and I sort of talked myself into, you know, well, if that didn't work, when I get to heaven, I'll somehow convince God I really wasn't that bad after all. So there was no repentance in my life. I wanted to go to heaven, but I didn't want to go to heaven God's way. I wanted to go to heaven still in my sin. I mean, I did, wouldn't have put it in those words exactly, but I didn't want to go to hell, but I wanted to on in my sin, if if I'm making sense. So the barrier that prevented me from coming to Christ was just a love of my sin. DW, please flesh that out a little bit more. When you say that you had a love of your sin, I'm thinking of the average person. They don't typically sit around and think, hmm, I really like this sin or I really love this sin. It just comes about naturally. Oftentimes, that's what they're accustomed to doing. It's a habit, and so they continue in it. Many of them may not even feel like what they're doing is necessarily sin. So when you say you loved your sin, could you define that, flesh that out a little more, please? So I guess I'd have to say I knew what I was doing was wrong. Like something inside told me the things that I was doing weren't right, but I didn't want to change. And I knew that if I Again, it wasn't so much of a conscious thing, but I knew the reason I stayed away from church is because I knew that I couldn't really do that and continue doing what I was doing. I see. And maybe a better way, you know, since they say hindsight is twenty twenty, I was sharing the gospel with a coworker of mine recently. And at the end of the conversation, I asked him, you know, do you understand what I've told you? And he repeated back to me, like verbatim, like he clearly understood the gospel. And I said, okay. Is there any reason you can think of that you would not want to accept Christ as your Savior? And he said, yes. He said, because there are little sins that I've got in my life. And these are his words. He said, there is sin in my life that I don't want to give up. And even though I wouldn't have articulated it in those exact words, that's the thing. You know, I realized that if it was going to come to Christ, I couldn't continue as boldly in my sin as I had been. Again, I wouldn't have articulated it that way. But, you know, looking back on it, that's what I take from it. So, you know, I've heard of people who... You know, like I talked to a Chinese man one time that he had come to a church service at my church back in Virginia. And after the church service, I said to him, you know, what did you think about the message? And he said, it's very true. And I said, oh, okay. I said, do you know the Lord is your Savior? And he said, no. He said, I don't. And I said, oh, well, why not? And he said, well, because if I did accepted the truth, I would have to give up all this stuff and, you know, he was talking about his position in the government in China and so forth. He was unwilling to come to Christ because something, you know, from this world that was of more value to him. And I'm persuaded that lots of people see the truth when they're confronted with it, of course, but they find something in this world of more value. And for me, the fornication that I was involved with was of more value. Yeah, it's amazing that a lot of folks have that barrier of loving their sin and don't want to give it up. I can tell you of a brother who was witnessing to a lady and she told him plain blank, I do not want to be saved because if I get saved, I'm going to have to give up fornication. And that's the reason why she didn't want to be saved that night and probably 
as far as I know, that's the reason maybe she's not safe today. And a lot of folks know that the lifestyle that they live currently, Jesus Christ will change that. And that's the lifestyle they know, that's the lifestyle they love. So they don't want to give it up. Yeah. So obviously those were barriers in your way of being saved. How were those barriers eventually removed for you? Well, like I said, while I was memorizing Romans 10.9, I couldn't articulate it to you in any sensible way at the time, because the only verses I knew when I got saved were John 3.16 and John 3.17. I had learned those as a child. Those are the only Bible verses that I remember having memorized. But when I read Romans 10.9, it says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, I just became acutely aware of the deity of Christ. I had never really stopped and considered the fact that he is God. And, you know, later I would memorize Isaiah 43, 11, which says, I, even I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. But I had no way of, you know, convincing anyone else at the time that Christ is God, but I just became acutely aware of that truth. And when I saw the deity of Christ, I sometimes say to people, it was like he was in the room staring me in the face. I just was confronted with his holiness and his deity. And so in that moment, like I said, I had just been rehearsing my sin, at least in a general way. And then suddenly here, it all comes to the forefront, my fornication and all this stuff just came right up in my face. And I realized in the light of Christ's holiness, I realized that I was God's enemy because I was a rebel against his law. And, you know, in that moment, I knew that God would judge me because of his holiness. I knew also, though, that he wasn't my enemy because he wanted to be, but because I wouldn't let him be my savior up to that point. And I know I'm saying it, you know, again, in that moment, I wasn't thinking through things quite in these terms. But again, looking back, you know, I digested what I was thinking and feeling at the time. And so being confronted with his holiness, I just suddenly realized that I had to personally receive his forgiveness and his reconciliation. And that was because of the death of his son. And so seeing myself in the light of his holiness, I realized that Christ was the only Savior. and I received him. Basically, don't remember the exact words that I prayed, but I remember thinking to myself that there were people that I remember being in church when I was growing up that would come forward at some point. They were already saved, if you will, and they were coming forward in a service and rededicating their life to the Lord and supposedly giving him everything. And I remember saying to myself, I don't want to waste time. I've already wasted 30 years of my life. I don't want to waste any more time. I said something to the Lord like this, Lord, I want you to have everything. And I just want you to take my life and use me. uh, So I sort of say that I got saved and yielded to him completely all at the same time. Amen. Still to come on the Removing Barriers podcast, we will continue talking with DW and we'll find out what his life is now after salvation and what he's doing to help others remove the barriers that they face in their life. We'll be right back. Antivirus software protects you from malware. But to protect your privacy and security on the web, you need a virtual private network or VPN. Did you know that Ivacy offers an easy to use VPN app for each of your favorite devices? From Windows, Macs, and smartphones to smart TVs, tablets, and browser extensions, and even gaming consoles. Get Ivacy for your choice of devices to secure your connection Browse with privacy and access content from anywhere in the world. Go to ivacy.com or click the link in the show notes. Use coupon code Removing Barriers for a 20% discount. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. D.W., after salvation, what changes were evident in your life? Well, I went and looked it up because I couldn't remember exactly. I mean, I remembered the date, but I didn't remember what day of the week it was. November 9th was a Sunday. Don't remember if I went to church that day or not. But like I said, around 1030 at night was when I saw the deity of Christ and received him as my savior. I don't know if it was that night or the next day, but I cut my hair. I didn't have like super long hair, but I had hair long enough that I could pull it back in a miniature man bun. So, And I'm surprised MCG didn't even smile during that. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I cut my hair. I shaved my goatee off. I removed my piercings. I had several piercings. No one told me to do that. I just felt like I needed to be clean. And I didn't feel like this stuff was clean. And I remember walking into church. I don't know if it was the Wednesday or Sunday after that or whatever. And I saw the fellow who had shared the gospel with me, had shared that tract with me. And he got really surprised, look on his face. And he said, what happened to you? And I saw, so I told him and he said, praise the Lord. He said, because I was pretty sure you weren't saved. <laughs> and he had been praying for me by name for about a week and a half or so. And I've never taken drugs since. I've never drank alcohol since. Tried to quit smoking four or five times before I got saved. After getting saved, I've never smoked since. Within two weeks of that, I threw about two or $3,000 worth of stuff out of my home. Like I said, I was involved with a woman at the time. I went to her and I told her what happened to me. I told her what the Lord had done. And I told her, I don't know what the Lord's planning to do with my life, but if he calls me overseas or something like that, are you planning to go with me? And she said, no. So I stood up and I said, well, we've got nothing further to discuss. And I left. I walked out of her house. All my former friends disappeared over the next few weeks and months, not because I told them to, but because I didn't continue in the same things that I had done before. And I remember being at my parents' home one time, and I was telling them how the Lord saved my soul. And I remember my mom, and she's not a terribly excitable person, but I remember her saying, Amen! (laughs) So, you know, those are some of the things that changed in my life. People noticed a dark contrast. Did you get baptized over again? Not immediately. I did around Easter, actually. I, I got baptized. So I got saved in November. And I was baptized around Easter time frame. And just want to make it clear that baptism does not save you. Right. That's right. Paul says in, I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, that God sent him not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So clearly those two things are separate things. Do you think the way your barriers were removed would be effective in reaching other people today? Yes, I do. I've used my testimony numerous times to share the gospel with someone. You know, my testimony isn't the gospel, but it can create an opportunity to share the gospel with someone. So I'm thinking specifically of a kid by the name of Daniel. When I lived in Great Falls, Montana, he was a shuttle driver. He would drive me back and forth between my house and the dealership where I was getting my car repaired. And a lot of things that were in my testimony, he could identify with. His mother was a meth addict and you know, and I won't get into all his story and so forth necessarily, but the Lord used my testimony, my barriers to, to help open his eyes. And the third time he and I met was at a Starbucks and he ended up while he was there. He said, you know, I don't want to be judged. I want to get saved. And he, I didn't lead him through a prayer. I just, you know, he and I talked for probably about a half an hour. At the end of that, he was earnest that he wanted to get saved. And he got baptized a few weeks after that. And the last I heard, he was still you know, wanting to serve the Lord and so forth. So Praise the Lord. That's really a blessing because I think a lot of folks don't realize how powerful their testimony can be. 
you can't really argue against someone's testimony per se. So that's really good. So tell me, what are you personally doing to help remove barriers like the ones you face in the life of others today? Well, like I said, I love sharing the gospel. It wasn't just with Daniel. I love sharing the gospel with people. I was sharing the gospel with uh, one of the guys that reports to me at work. So he's a subordinate of mine. I waited until after the end of the workday. We both happened to be there at the same time. He's clocking out and, you know, I just started talking with him and, and I asked him about his soul and he was saying that he thought that repentance was what was necessary to get saved. But when I asked him about repentance, he was actually defining it as penance, which is slightly different than repentance. Yep. And so anyway, long story short, I was able to share some of my testimony with him. It was kind of tight for time, so I didn't get to say a whole lot. I shared a booklet with him that's got the gospel in it. and We've talked a few times since then, but he asked me something at right then and before I left when he said, why are you doing this? And I said, well, I said, uh, the Lord's changed my life. And I said, also, you know, I said, there are family members of my wife that I've never met, but because she loves them, I love them. And the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And so because he loves you and I love him, by proxy, I love you as well. And he seemed really stunned by that. I guess, you know, he had never heard anybody sort of express it that way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I love to share the gospel with people. I seek opportunities to lovingly confront others with the gospel. You know, there's a term with evangelism, personal confrontation, or personal confrontational evangelism. It almost sounds antagonistic, but it's not. In love, you're wanting to confront somebody with the truth. You know, if uh, if you love somebody that's doing wrong, then you want to go with, to them and confront them with, you know, the fact that they're doing wrong and they could do better because you love them. You know, a parent that loves their child is going to correct their child and they're going to confront them with the fact that they're, that child's not doing right. It's not a, a mean thing. It's a loving thing. And so I love to seek opportunities to confront others with the gospel because, you know, the Lord changed my life. And I mean, it not only gave me a home in heaven, saved me from the penalty of sin, but he also is in the process of saving me from the power of sin. He's changing my life to conform me to the image of his dear son. And, you know, so both of those things are of extreme value to me. And I want others to experience that same thing. I'm going to divert a little bit here, but as a supervisor, how do you go about sharing the gospel with someone who's under you without them feeling like, well, my supervisor is bringing up religion or spiritual sure. stuff to me? Well, the first thing, at least what I've done, is I don't really do a whole lot of that on the clock. So if I'm working for my boss, unless they ask, I might have a brief conversation with them. But if it goes longer than a minute or two, I would say to them, hey, is there any chance we could meet after work and just chat sometime or something like that? Or I'll invite them over for dinner. Kind of hard to do with COVID, but but you know I'd invite them over for dinner, talk to them that way, get them out of you know that the workplace kind of environment. During meetings, sometimes I will actually praise the Lord if in a meeting, sometimes in some of our huddles, our meetings, somebody might ask, you know, what's your favorite thing? What's the best thing that happened to you yesterday? And so I'll share a praise for my devotions or whatever. I guess what I'm trying to say is talking about the Lord is something that I do even with my customers. I'll be on the phone with somebody talking to them. I don't go into a full gospel presentation necessarily every time. I don't think my boss would, you know, he's not paying me to do that. So, but at the same time, I try to share a praise or something like that. Or if they ask me how I'm doing, I try to remember to say something like, you know, I'm doing great because the Lord's, you know, really blessing me or something like that. What I'm trying to say is my coworkers, my subordinates, they're hearing me, you know, talk about the Lord frequently. So then after work, you know, like in this case, and oftentimes I will pray for opportunities. I remember being toward the end of my workday one day, and I was one of my 
other subordinates, he was going to be there late. And I was specifically praying at the end of the day, Lord, if you would give me an opportunity, I'll talk to him. And so praying for that opportunity and then taking it when it presents itself, not forcing it, but taking it when it presents itself and seeking it in a way so you know, I don't just stand up and start preaching the gospel to him at 6.01 when, the, when we're off the clock. But, you know, in this case with my subordinate, the one that ended up asking me why I was talking to him about it, you know, I just started off by saying, so, hey, you know, and I just made the assumption that he knows the Lord. So I said, hey, how did you come to know the Lord? And I do that not thinking necessarily that he is actually saved, but their answer to that will give me a pretty good clue as to whether or not they are. You know, sometimes they'll say they were baptized into it or they were born into it or, you know, whatever. And then at that point, I can be at least relatively confident whether they might actually be saved or not. And then that lets me know where to go from there. So it's not that I throw caution to the wind, if you will, but I just sort of approach it in a folksy kind of way, a normal, you know, conversational kind of way. And since they hear me talking about the Lord on a semi-regular basis anyway, it's not like a shocker to them, if I'm, if I'm making sense. Yeah, definitely. So we want to go into a little bit of a fun section where we just find out some of your favorite stuff in terms of scripture and stuff like that. So first thing, what is your favorite scripture verse? I actually have two. One is Psalm 29.2, which says, Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Another verse that's a favorite of mine is Proverbs 18.10, which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower, and the righteous runneth into it and is safe. And the reason those two are my favorites is because I really do want to be holy. I really do want my life to to bring him glory. And the other verse is a favorite of mine because I am so tried and tempted so often. And that verse literally means that the righteous can run to the Lord at any moment, at any time, constantly, over and over and over. And his name is a a strong tower and they're safe. And so whenever I'm tempted, I, I just run to the Lord in prayer. I wish I could say I always did that. I want to, but I just constantly run to the Lord. So Awesome. What is your favorite biblical historical account? I don't want to call it a story because <laughs> nothing in the scripture is a story. It's actually That's history. Right. What's mm-hmm. your favorite biblical historical account? I would say it's Second Samuel 12, sort of combined with Psalm 51, because it's an account of, you know, before I was saved, I was a fornicator. And, you know, here David has presumptuously sinned against the Lord, and yet the Lord forgives him. So It's always amazing how the Lord can forgive us when we, quote-unquote, messed up. What is the most convicting scripture passage to you? That could be a favorite scripture passage. This is a scripture passage that, when you think about it, it always, or most of the time, bring conviction. And there are so many. <laughs> the one I would say, probably 1 Corinthians 6.18 through 20, but 6.18 primarily which says, flee fornication for every sin that a man doeth is about the body, but he that committed fornication sinneth against his own body. Because of all the wicked things that I've done before I got saved, I've oftentimes said to people, I mean, not to everybody I talk to, but in specific circumstances where it seems helpful or, you know, whatever, maybe it's to open an opportunity to share the gospel or whatever, I'll share with people, I don't need an internet connection. I've got too much stuff, you know, stored in my brain. So that's why I said before with Proverbs 18.10 that I'm constantly running to the Lord. And so that verse, every time I read 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee fornication for every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Even though my sin is paid for, it's a constant struggle. I don't know if I'm making sense, but 
No, you're making perfect sense. Totally can understand that conviction there. What is your favorite hymn of the faith? By Jesus, I love thee. I would sing for you, but then MCG might want to play the piano. So <laughs> I probably wouldn't play the piano while you sing, brother. <laughs> yeah, but even that scripture verse, the righteous run into it and they're saved. That's a chorus, actually. I don't know if you ever heard it song, but that's a chorus that we sing in the Caribbean. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. But I'm not going to sing it neither. Because so. you can't. <laughs> Good, good. You wouldn't want to see me take the headphones off and throw them down. <laughs> <You know>, just... <laughs> That's amazing because it's such comfort to know that we can run to the Lord when Amen. times are tough. Preach. And we don't do it often enough, so but we definitely should run to the Lord more. What is your favorite giant of the faith from the Bible? And I'll give you a bonus. You can tell us a giant of the faith that's not in the Bible as well. Well, my favorite Bible giant of the faith would be Paul because he's the most Christ-like. You know, a lot of things that challenged me from his life, his willingness to endure great labor for the Lord. And I'm not judging anybody else. I don't think as many Christians will actually hear the words, well done, thou good and faithful servant, as people that hope they will. You know, they go to church every Sunday and maybe they read their Bible and stuff, but they're not giving their all. And so I want to be one of those people that hears, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think Paul was one. And so I, I want to follow him as he followed Christ. Outside of the Bible, I have several. I think of Adonai Judson. Again, very Pauline-like. C.T. Studd. Love his quote that says, you know, most men want to live within sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So those are some of the giants of the faith outside the Bible that I would look up to. D.W., you've shared your testimony with us, your history, how the Lord came to save you. Would you share with us, in your experience and in your opinion, how can the barriers that you faced in your life be removed in the lives of others? We'll give you the floor. Well, in a general sense, I would say that those barriers could be removed if the church of the living God would be filled with the Spirit and would be obedient to her Lord and Master, and go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I think that's something that we're woefully disobedient in, to be honest with you. So I think if that happened, a lot more people's barriers would be removed. But specifically, I think by people faithfully and personally confronting others with the gospel— at my father's funeral, I recently got a chance to, in a very public way, preach the gospel. And as I studied out, I was reminded that the gospel means the good news. To hear about how God came to earth and took on the form of a servant and tasted death for every man. And he rose again the third day. And how that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And the gospel is very simple. It's not super complicated like some people make it out to be. Second Corinthians 11 through 3. Paul writes, and he says, But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, 
so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. And the word simplicity there literally means a few parts. The gospel is incredibly simple. It's a few parts. People try to add church membership to it or baptism or good works, but it's those parts aren't included in the gospel. It's a few parts. And Paul's fear was that the Corinthians would miss the gospel because of its simplicity. But there's also a danger, however, in oversimplifying the gospel by simply just telling people that they're sinners and that they need to receive Jesus and that going to heaven is the goal of salvation. What I mean by that is sometimes we start in the New Testament. We start talking about these terms without really explaining them. And people need to understand not just the fact that they are sinners, but why they are sinners, what sin is, where sin came from, and who Jesus Christ is, why he came, why he's the Savior. And so while the whole Bible talks about Jesus Christ, God took a lot of time and many words in the Bible to introduce who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And we call that introduction the Old Testament. Uh, even the verse where Paul spoke, when he spoke about there, the simplicity that's in Christ, he took us back to the Old Testament in that very verse. He says that as the serpent beguiled Eve. So when asked what the gospel is, many people, you know, they'll run to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. And Paul says in short form what the gospel is. He says in verse 1, actually, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. And then in verse 3, he continues and he says, For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Through that text, many emphasize the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and those are essential. They're crucial. They're unavoidable minimums that can't be overlooked if someone's to hear the gospel. However, twice in that passage, Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, according to the Scriptures. Sometimes I'll talk about how the fact that, you know, if you went through the average gospel tract with a Mormon, they would agree to all the things in the tract. And they would say, yes, Jesus Christ, he came and he died on the cross and so forth. It is not until they're confronted with the Jesus Christ according to the scriptures that there's a problem. You know, he's God. He's the only God. And so in that same context as 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 there, where Paul talks about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul takes us back to the literal historical Genesis account in verses 21 and 22 of that passage. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. So Adam was a real man. He lived 6,000 years ago. And he actually sinned against a real God. Adam only had one commandment and he broke it. God is real. He's holy. And God has a law. And all of us, like Adam, have broken God's commandments, God's law. And that's why in Romans 5.12, Paul again takes us back to the creation account and says, Wherefore, as by one man, and that's Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Paul is painting a picture that by virtue of the fact that we sin, it proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that if we had been in the garden with Adam, we would have eaten the fruit right along with him. God warned Adam about disobeying his one commandment, about not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It wasn't the fruit that killed Adam and Eve. It was the disobedience of God's command. And in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, it says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, 
but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. And just like then, the penalty for sin is still death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. That's that verse that I was reading on November 9, 2008. And a wage is a rightly deserved reward. When we work a job, we are paid in wages. Our boss pays us because we worked. We earned those wages. They belong to us. The same is true with death. By our sinful works, we rightly earn death. Each time we violate God's commands, we prove that we deserve death. And God says, thou shalt, and we say no. Or if God says, thou shalt not, and we say, I'm going to. Some might ask, though, you know, isn't that unfair? I mean, is sin really all that bad? And uh, I like to use the illustration of actual conversation I had with a fellow that I call Keith. When I was back in Montana, I don't actually remember his name, but I call him Keith. And I was standing on his doorstep talking with him, and I said to him, you know, Keith, if I said something you didn't like and you took a swing at me, what would happen? He said, well, I'm bigger than you. I'll win. And <laughs> I didn't tell him I was a former Marine, and I had close combat instruction, but I was probably a little out of practice anyway. But anyway, I said, well, what if I don't kill you? You don't kill me. Neither of us calls the cops. What happens? And he says, well, I don't know. In a few weeks, maybe we'll be friends again. I thought, well, that's interesting logic that you've got going there. But I said, what if I was the governor of Montana? And he said, well, I'd probably go to jail. And I said, what if I was the president of the United States? He said, well, those guys with sunglasses and earbuds, they would shoot me. They would kill me first, ask questions later. And I said, well, why does the penalty get worse? I'm a man, governor of Montana, he's a man, president of the United States, he's a man. Why does the penalty get worse? And he says, well... He says, President has the highest office in the land. He's got the most important office, and you're nobody. I said, well, thanks, Keith. I appreciate that. But I said, you're absolutely right. He's got a higher office, and God's office is infinite. And when we offend an infinite God, the penalty for that is infinite. That's why hell is eternal. It's, it's an infinite penalty. It's an everlasting penalty. And you know, the fact that the wages of our sin is death is not an unfair wage. It's perfectly reasonable, fair, and just because of the one that we've offended. So if that's where the gospel ended, though, that wouldn't be good news. That would be bad news. And that's why I love that word, the little word but there in the middle of Romans 6.23. You know, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, there was a real man named Adam that sinned against a real God, and like Adam, we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of Adam's sin was death. The wages of our sin is also death because we violated the law of a holy and a righteous God. But God, the Bible says in Romans 5, 8, but God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So the Bible tells us that also in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels that he could taste death for every man. I think that's fascinating because in order to pay for the sin of the whole world, he had to be God. He had to be infinite to pay for my infinite sin and your infinite sin and the infinite sin of the whole world. You know, and But at the same time, he had to be man in order to die for man. You know, I've had people ask me that, you know, why did he have to be God? Why did he have to be man? And that's the reason, because he had to be infinite, but yet he had to be able to be a man to pay for man's sin because by man, sin entered the world, and so death had to be paid by man. And so he became a man so that he could taste death for every man. So he was perfectly able to pay that debt, and he did pay it. So that's the good news. 
But hearing that good news doesn't save a person. I'm sure, like I said before, that I was in church as a child. I'm sure I heard the gospel lots, but I didn't want that. I didn't want the gospel. I didn't want the Lord Jesus Christ. I loved my sin. And I had to come to that place where I said, my sin is not more valuable to me than the Lord Jesus Christ. When I saw his deity, when I saw the holiness of God, I wanted to be saved from my sin. And so knowing the gospel doesn't save a person, but believing the gospel does. And so in that moment, when I turned from my sins, that repentance is a change of mind. I saw God's word was true and I was headed to hell. And so I turned from that and I received him. You know, Paul says uh, that he preached repentance toward God. That's a turning, a change of mind to God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that night, that's what I did, November 9, 2008. And in Matthew chapter 21, Christ makes an astounding statement. He says, For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, speaking of John the Baptist, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterward, that ye might believe. And so what kept me from being saved all those years was the fact that I was not willing to turn away from my sin. I loved my sin. And that night, November 9, 2008, I was willing to turn from my sin and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So I changed my mind that night about him, about the gospel. And, you know, a lot of people, though, they like to complicate the gospel. They add works, church membership, growing up in a Christian home, knowing lots of Bible truth, being a deacon or a deacon's wife, all kinds of other things to the gospel. Others complicate it with things by making the Bible teach something like it's just one of many religions. But the Bible isn't just another religion. There's really only two, do and done. So every religious person in the world, even atheists, I've talked to them, they try to assert that if heaven's real, that maybe they can do something to impress this God, that just in case he's real, you know, he'll let me go there. I talk to Jewish people, Muslims, they all say the same thing. I hope I'm going to go to heaven. I hope I do enough. When I get to heaven, you know, my good works will be weighed against my bad works or whatever. And the Bible doesn't say that, though. It says that if we're going to be saved, we have to cease our works as God ceased from his works. And we just trust in him. We receive him as our savior. He is salvation. And those Pharisees that Christ was talking to, they trusted in their heritage, the fact that they were Jewish, to save them. But Jesus said that they would not repent. They wouldn't change their mind about that Then, in order that they might believe. And so for a person's barriers to be removed, they've got to discard what they think. And they've got to receive what the Lord says. And that is that Jesus Christ came to the earth, that he died on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he's God, and he's able to pay for sin, and he also became a man. And if they'll turn from their sin and receive that, if they'll receive him, that's eternal life. DW, thank you for joining us on the Removing Barriers podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us or to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm slash removing barriers this has been the removing barriers podcast we attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross